God has to minister to us before He can minister through us. We all want the product, but we don't always want the process. And maybe you are here listening to me today and you say, God, what is going on in my life? Why am I under all this hardship? Why are you letting this happen to me? But the question you need to be asking is not why, but what? What are you trying to accomplish in my life, Lord, through this trial? What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to shape me and equip me? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are looking at the life of Joseph in part two of our study, Achieving Moral Victory. Yesterday, we saw how God groomed and prepared Joseph as he encountered different trials and temptation. And today, we will see that sometimes success and prominence for the true believer can make them a prime target for temptation. Please join us in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6, as we continue. Is there anything in your life that can be explained only by the hand of God? There ought to be. Now, please understand, God does not bless Joseph apart from his own free will, but in conjunction with his will. And Joseph had the kind of relationship with God where, above all, he wanted to please God, and so God was able to put his hand on his life. Verse 6 serves as kind of a summary of his accomplishments. Look at it. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I mean, he was wise to stay out of Joseph's way because he was accomplishing something that no one else had ever done in his house. This man was competent. He had a positive outlook. He had godly character. He was handsome, but he was a slave. And so we need to ask, how could he have so much and end up as a slave? Well, bear in mind that success in the Christian life is not determined by your position, it's determined by your person. I don't care if you're a plumber or a garbage man or a pastor or the president of a corporation, that's insignificant to God the way the world may view your profession. The important question to ask is, is God at work in my life? Is there a touch of the Lord's power in my life? Now, we've already noted four times in the span of five verses that God was at work in Joseph's life. So my first point is that Joseph was trusted by a prosperous master. But in addition to being trusted by a prosperous master, Joseph was tempted by a persistent woman. He's tempted by a persistent woman. Now, the last sentence in verse 6 is really a perfect transition. If you are using the New American Standard, you'll notice the first word is highlighted in a bold print. That tells you that in the translator's mind, this is a new paragraph. And that's helpful when you see either a verse that's blackened or maybe in the middle of a verse, the first word is blackened. That tells you it's a new paragraph. You should read the preface to the New American Standard. It will give you a lot of simple helps in your Bible study. And the paragraph is the smallest unit of study 
by which we examine the Scripture to understand its context. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The CSB renders it, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. This expression, handsome, by the way, is found only four times in the Old Testament. It describes outward beauty. It's used of King David. It's used of King David's son, Absalom. And it's used of Joseph's mother, Rachel. Rachel had all the good looks. And obviously, Joseph inherited some of that. Now, before long, he's tempted. And I want you to see how the devil is going to use Potiphar's wife to pull off this temptation. He doesn't leave a man like Joseph alone. He wants to ruin him. He tried to ruin him through his brothers. He was unsuccessful, as we'll see, as you read the rest of the biography. And so now he uses the schemes of this shameless, adulterous woman. And by the way, the parallels between Joseph and the Lord Jesus constantly surface all the way through. And that's why many would describe Joseph as a type of Christ. And though he is tempted, no sin is ever recorded. He was a sinner. He did sin. We all stumble in many ways. But no sin is ever recorded about this man's life. That's only could be said of a few people in all the Bible. Of course, Christ is the only one who literally never, ever sinned. So there are several truths about this temptation that I want you to look at. First, this temptation was a pointed temptation. It was a pointed temptation. Point A there on your outline if you're taking notes, and you should take notes, and you should go home and read about it. I spent 30 hours this week just on this sermon, and I want it to sink and penetrate in your heart. I've been through this passage a dozen times but it was fresh for me all over again this week. Verse 7 begins, it, became, it came about after these events. And of course, the logical question to ask would be, after what events? After Joseph had risen to the position of comptroller here in Potiphar's estate. His temptation was not unrelated to his rise in power. Had he not proven himself to be a capable leader, this woman would hardly have ever acknowledged his existence. There was little chance that she would ever be interested in a slave. However, in the Egyptian culture, with leadership abilities and good looks, that's another thing. So he is in a position of leadership, and with it comes temptation. And very often, success and prominence for the true believer, can make them a prime target for temptation. Satan's not interested in the person who's asleep in God's eyes. They may fall into temptation, but not because of a direct assault of the evil one, probably just because they're carried away by their own fallen lust. But when someone is in a position of prominence, they become a target for the devil. One of my professors, Dr. Howard Hendricks, would always tell us, there's a target painted on your back. Why? Because if God can take a pastor down, there's shock, there's shame, there's embarrassment, and there's great damage to the cause of Christ. And by the way, let me just remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've done it in every sermon so far in this series. Those are two verses 1 Corinthians 10, really, uh, 
12 and 13 that you should memorize. Again, when I say the top 100 verses, I'm talking about passages. So sometimes there's two or three verses that are stuck together. So when we come to this, uh, some of us may have a lot of memorizing to do, but there's a certain uh, array of verses that you should know, not only for yourself, but for those children, for those loved ones, for those people that God will entrust you to disciple. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Now, if you know the context, he has just recorded a number of Israel's failings. And it would be easy to look at, you know, that's Israel, man. That's their problem. And Paul says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Because when you think you've licked some sin in your life, that you're beyond being tempted, you better watch out. And then he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, there's no temptation that you will ever face that's unique to you. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. God is faithful. That is, there's a divinely appointed limitation to the temptation that may come your way. God will not allow your own sinful flesh or the world system or the devil, the three forces that wage war against the believer that we study in the discovery class. He won't allow any of those things to come upon you that you cannot handle. But with the temptation, notice, will provide the way of escape also. Notice the last phrase, that you may be able to endure. You see, the real test is whether you will hold up or whether you will fold up. And so here in Genesis 39, this same principle, though not yet penned by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, is illustrated through Joseph's life. Potiphar's wife, to whom we're introduced here in verse 7, takes a very pointed approach. Notice, if you will, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now, hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the right to the book of Proverbs. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center, and right after the Psalms, you will come to Proverbs and turn to Proverbs chapter 7. Some of you are reading a chapter in Proverbs every day. There's 31 days in August and 30 days in September and 31 days in October, but there's a chapter for every day of the month. And so on Tuesday, if you are reading through Proverbs, as many of you do, you'll come to this passage, Proverbs chapter 7. Now, Potiphar's wife is a perfect picture of the woman that is described here. And in this chapter, you have a father who's giving counsel to his son, and he's reminding him to hide God's wisdom into his heart. To, to, uh, to treasure God's word, and one of the reasons is it will protect him from the seductive, adulterous woman. And so beginning in verse 6, he recounts his own experience when one day he was looking out the window. Here's Solomon. He's looking out the lattice of his house, and it says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerning among the youths a young man lacking sense. Now notice Solomon describes him as naive and as lacking sense. That does not mean that he's stupid. He may be a whiz in math, 
But in the moral realm, he's lacking sense. You can have an incredibly high IQ, but lack moral direction. And if you do, then you can find yourself morally shipwrecked. Another person may be of average intelligence, but because he calls the word of God his friend, to use Solomon's words, he finds that he is strong and consistently successful against the seductive woman. So here is a young man passing through the street. As far as we know, he doesn't have adultery on his mind, but neither does he have the things of God on his mind and in his heart. And so he's completely unprepared for what he is about to encounter. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes away to her house. Not deliberately, he just sets out for her house, but you know, it's on his path. He's unaware of the danger that he's about to face. And he's unaware because he's naive. And he's naive because verse 4 indicates he never calls wisdom his friend to keep him from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Now look at verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness... So this young man is going to the wrong place at the wrong time, which is often the occasion for sin. We studied that with David and Bathsheba, classic example. David really, at least at that moment in his life, exemplified naivete. He should have been out with the troops in battle, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Please notice she's dressed as a harlot. She's not a harlot. She's just dressed like one. And it's clear in verses 16 through 20 that she's married, that she comes from a wealthy home, that she's a woman of society, we might say. But in terms of her character, in terms of her conduct, she's a woman of the street. She's dressed to kill. Her clothing is provocative. It's suggestive. It's it's alluring. She's going after a man. And sadly, that's the way a lot of even Christian evangelical women dress. And let me say to the young ladies, if you think that's what you need to do to attract a man, you will attract the wrong kind of a man, and you'll become a statistic. Where in the evangelical church, the divorce rate is not that much different from that of the lost. Now, before he goes on to describe her tactic, Solomon tells us here in verse 11 something about her character. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is restless. She's the opposite of the woman in Proverbs 31 who loves her home. But in this woman's mind, the home is restrictive. She finds, it rest, she finds herself restless there like she's in a prison. Verse 12, she is now in the streets. Now in the squares and lurks by every corner. She goes to places where she can meet men to satisfy her own lust. In some cities, it might still be in the square. Maybe it's in the club, the bar, some party. So she seizes him and kisses him. Like Potiphar's wife, there's no shame here. She's very forward. She's a predator. She goes after him. But the real seduction comes in her words. 
That's what Solomon is focusing on here. Something that we will see, Joseph never stays long enough around to listen to. And with a brazen face, she says to him, verse 14, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I have paid my vows. Now that's kind of a camouflaged kind of speech. She begins by using religious talk. She's been to the temple. Today we'd say she's gone to church. She's paid her vows. She's done her religious duty. In other words, she wants him to know that she's no cheap piece of meat, that she's religious, that she's respectable. Her speech, it's smooth, it's slick, it's not genuine. She's outwardly religious, but her heart is a million miles away. She flatters this naive young man. Look at verse 15. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. She's saying, look, I I came looking for you. Literally, the Hebrew text reads, I have come out to seek your face. It's a Hebrew idiom, meaning I like you. You're handsome. I came looking for you. And now it's providential. Here you are. So having puffed up his pride, she now stirs up his lust, verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Now those are expensive spices. This is a wealthy woman, and her bed is just waiting for him. This is not some seedy prostitute. She wants him to know what kind of a woman she is. Now she makes him an offer he can't refuse. Verse 18, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. In other words, there's no risk. My husband is several weeks away. He won't be back until the full moon. No one will ever know we can spend a long, delightful night together. It's safe. You don't have to worry. But sin is never safe. It's never risk-free. They've already been spotted, verse 6. He was looking through his window, and he observed the whole thing. She thought nobody knew. But someone was watching the whole time. And that's often the way it is with adultery. People think it's secret, it's safe. But God has a way of putting eyes and ears around the person who is going after, quote-unquote, safe sex. But sex outside of marriage is never, ever safe. My wife and I were on vacation, and we're in a remote place in a gift shop, and who do we see? A pastor with another woman. He would have never have dreamed that we would be there. So the lie in our day is that sexual repression, sexual expression, experimentation is a good and healthy thing. And so this young, naive man, because from the start he did not call wisdom his intimate friend, 
Verse 21 says, he's headed for disaster. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now go back to Genesis 39. We find the same kind of woman that we find here in Proverbs chapter 7, but she's encountering a very different kind of man. Look at Genesis 39 in verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, lie with me. Once again, a very direct approach. It's sudden, it's unexpected, it's shameless. And her approach comes not just through her look, but through her words. And let me remind the men who are listening today, our society, our churches are filled with Potiphar's wives shameless women who will bring good men down. And ladies, of course, the corollary is true. Our churches are filled with shameless men who will bring good women down. So how does he respond to such a woman? Well, let me tell you first how some Christian men might respond. Some would flirt with the temptation, enjoying the attention that the woman is giving. Still others might rationalize and think, well, let me, let me think this over. And Satan, he'll use whatever he can to bring you down. And I suppose the super pious man might say, well, Mrs. Potiphar, let, let, let's pray about this. But that's not what Joseph does. And I suspect that before she made this direct appeal, she probably did little flirtatious things to make conversation with him. She probably looked at him in a certain way. The scripture speaks of a woman who captures a man by her eyes. Eyes can be clear and bright, or they can be seductive and sinful. And by the way, Satan has always hated the Jewish people. The heartache that they have experienced and are yet to experience in the time of Jacob's trouble, much of it has been directly an assault from the evil one. And here's Joseph, a really set-apart Jew, a Jew that God is ultimately going to use to preserve the nation. And Satan hates people like that. He could see that Joseph had a loving relationship with God. And so he doesn't like people like that. Here's a man, he's strong, he's handsome, he's a great leader, but he's passionate for the Lord. And so Satan tries to lure him through the only thing that Potiphar didn't give him, his wife. Now, I know Joseph could see this coming, and it's indicative in his answer. This is not a man who fantasizes sin. This is a man who fantasizes obedience. In fact, he not only says no, he gives three reasons for saying no. Look at verse 8. But he refused. If you forget the three reasons, please don't forget these three words, but he refused. That's just a flat out no. That's a decision of the will. And to those who would rationalize, do not forget how this red-blooded single man with all of the natural desires and passions of youth just says no to her address. Now, why does he refuse? He gives three reasons. 
The first reason is because he would be unfaithful to his master. Look, if you will, at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. He's saying, How can I betray my master's trust? He's a man who's invested everything in me. I'm not going to sell out the man who trusts me. So he tells her that he's, withheld, he's held nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. He had been put into a position of power, into a position of privilege, and he's not about to violate that, second, that sacred trust. But there's a second reason. Not only would he be unfaithful to his master, he would be unfaithful to himself. Look, if you will, at verse 9. There is no one greater in this house than I. Joseph had a clear-cut self-image of himself. It was beneath him to be involved immorally. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. There is no one greater in the house than I. Oh, that every man who ever got involved with a married woman, with any woman, and any woman who would get involved with some man, single or married, ultimately may be getting involved with another person's husband or wife. They are violating a relationship with another person. So he has a strong moral conviction that it was wrong to have such a relationship with another man's wife. Though the Ten Commandments had not yet been written on tablets of stone, they had already been written on Joseph's heart because the law of God is written into our hearts. That's why cultures across the world who've never seen a Bible innately have the same morality that's expressed in the Ten Commandments unless they suppress it. So what concerns me so much of the immorality that is prevalent in our society is that we have kind of a cavalier attitude. It's only sex. It's none of your business. If there's two adults who consent, there's nothing wrong with it. And everything our government is doing, virtually everything, the only thing they're really interested in is sexual immorality. So our president came out this week and he says, well, I don't believe life begins at conception. Oh, really? No, it's a woman's right to kill her little baby in the womb in spite of the fact that the Supreme Court overlooked the Texas decision. But it's not just an act between two consenting adults. Not when you've seen what I've seen as a pastor. When you see the children who whimper. When you see a woman who can cries uncontrollably, like the woman I counseled this week in another state because her husband cheated on her and she thought it would never happen. When I hear a man, grown men weep. It's nobody else's business. When you think that way, you've bought into the reasoning of the evil one. No one ever sins in isolation. It always affects someone. If you would like to listen again to today's sermon or any past messages, you can use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Also remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program AMV021. 
Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week Monday as we continue to search the scriptures.